in order to help you in your meditation practice. What will be done during this talk today is by way of the etymology of, by looking at the etymology of the terms Satipatthana, we shall then look at some of the qualities that this mindfulness or sati should possess. And it is mindfulness that is so crucial for the meditation practice. Based on mindfulness arises concentration, and based on this arises wisdom. So we want to have a good and practical understanding of what is meant by sati and also in a larger context by satipatthana. Now, the Venerable Saito Pandita of Myanmar does give lengthy explanations on this topic, and he's drawing from both the scriptures as well as from decades of practical experience with meditators. And so he has highlighted, usually he gives... This kind of a Nadema talk during retreats in Berlin, but also abroad. And by explaining some or highlighting some of the aspects of Satipatthana, a meditator then is in a position to understand what it's all about, and this then serves kind of as a recipe for progress in one's meditation practice. Now, the, in the prologue to the Satipatthana Sutta, we find one paragraph in which, or that is devoted to the benefits that can be derived from this practice. And the Buddha boldly declares that the practice of Satipatthana leads to to the seven benefits of the purification of beings, but what it means, purification of the minds of beings. It furthermore leads to the overcoming of mental, of sorrow and lamentation, and then of mental distress and physical suffering, and then of the, or it leads to the entering of the right path and the attainment of Nibbana itself. And hardly any other religious, or founder of religion has made a similar a bold statement with regard to mindfulness. And if so, then at least the Buddha's elaborations on mindfulness are pretty systematic and also pretty comprehensive. Now, when we practice Satipatthana, then we can expect more than these seven main benefits, there are a number of others that concern, well, 
you know, health for, you know, reason, or you know, one's health, uh, physical health, as well as certain, certain uh, mental, you know, difficult mental conditions. And uh, there is an in increasing body of uh, scientific uh, research that uh, shows uh, the effectiveness of uh, mindfulness uh, meditation. Now, the Pani term, Satipatthana, uh, oftentimes gets translated as foundation of uh, mindfulness, and uh, we will see uh, that uh, this is one translation, but it's not uh, the only one. And the Pani word Satipatthana can be broken up in uh, different ways. One uh, such way uh, would be as Sati and uh, Upatana, and another uh, way of breaking up uh, the term would be as Sati and Patana. And so yet a third way of uh, breaking up this term uh, would be as Sati, uh, then Pa, and then Tana. Now, the commentary to the middle-length uh, discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, prefers uh, uh, to explain uh, the term by breaking it up as sati and patana. And so, uh, then sati means uh, mindfulness, and patana is uh, said uh, to, um, or, or stands for, uh, foundation. And so, uh, thus we you know, come, or thus we derive you know, the you know, translation as uh, foundation of mindfulness. Now, different from uh, this interpretation is the uh, interpretation you know, that we find in the Patisambhida Magga, the path of discrimination, which uh, has been attributed to Elder Nyasariputta, one of the leading you know, disciples uh, of uh, you know, the Buddha. And uh, it is kind of um, a very fundamental work on meditation. And based on it, you know, to a large extent, is uh, the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, which uh, has been, uh, or which was compiled by Elder uh, Buddha Gosa, Acharya Buddha Gosa. Now, there we find uh, the explanation as follows, namely sati is mindfulness and upatana is then taken to mean establishment. Hence it becomes establishment of mindfulness. And the Visuddhimagga then goes on to explain this further by saying, and I'm quoting from Visuddhimagga 8, paragraph 168, and the footnote there, the establishment is mindfulness. Mindfulness is called establishment upatana since it approaches upagantra in the Pali language, the object, and remains there, titati, in Pali. And 
this is the, uh, well, accepted translation of the term in the Mahasi tradition. So the Venerable Mahasi Sadhu followed here the uh, explanations in or from the Patisamida Magga as well as uh, the path of uh, purification. And so establishment here means uh, that the observing mind approaches the object of observation and then um, doesn't just leave the object but rather stays with it for a longer period of time. Now, there is yet a different way of translating you know, this term you know, satipatthana, namely uh, uh, still you know, following you know, the uh, etymology of breaking the term up as sati and upatana, but as uh, Venerable Analayo in his book Satipatthana and uh, Professor Rice Davids uh, you know, from you know, previous president of uh, the Bali Tech Society you know, points out, the term Upatana could be taken to mean, well, being placing near and then being present and attention to, uh, paying attention to. Hence, when we combine the two, sati and upatana, then it becomes presence of mindfulness or attention, attending to an object with mindfulness. Now, I'm adding this uh, just for the sake of uh, completion, so that you know uh, there are different ways of uh, looking at uh, this uh, term. And when we summarize, or when we follow Venerable Mahasi Saido's definition, then we can say that Satipatthana means the firm, the close, and um, the firm and close establishment, steadfast establishment of mindfulness on the object of observation. Now, as for the third way or the next way of breaking up the term, namely as sati and then pa and then tana, this will be explained after a few minutes. And before doing this, it's helpful to know that this uh, even though mindfulness is of a single nature, yet it is uh, said to be fourfold, namely uh, regarding you know, the categories of objects. And so in the Satipatthana uh, Sutta, we find that the Buddha is speaking of Kaya Nupasana Satipatthana, of Vedana Nupasana Satipatthana, of Chaita Satipatthana, no, 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 
Chaitanupasana Satipatthana and Dhammanupasana Satipatthana. And the first one refers to mindfulness or contemplating objects with bodily objects with mindfulness. And the second one is the mindful contemplation of feelings and this refers to pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feelings. And so please do know that here the term feeling, Vedna, is not the same as emotion as is used in modern psychology. And emotion is a term that is more complicated. By Vedana, we simply refer to the affective quality of an object of either being pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Then we have the mindful contemplation of the mind, Chaita Nupasana Satipatthana, and this covers a total of 16 wellness states of mind, and some of which are a mind that is associated with lust, and a mind that is free from lust, a mind that is associated with anger, and a mind that is free of anger, and so on and so forth. And uh, then there are also some lofty you know, mental, you know, mental or lofty you know, forms of uh, chaita of mind, you know, which uh, are being mentioned. And in <coughs> sorry, in one of the you know, future you know, dhamma talks, we will you know, go more into you know, the details of this. And then we have dhamma nupasana you know, satipatthana, and so, uh, this is mindful contemplation of uh, Dhamma, and the term uh, Dhamma here is um, is a term uh, that represents quite some you know, difficulties when it comes to its uh, interpretation. And you know, for the time being, you know, we you know, will you know, limit ourselves you know, to simply taking or referring back to the Satipatthana Sutta itself, where uh, this Dhamma Nupasana Satipatthana gets explained as the contemplation of the five hindrances, then of the five aggregates, and then of the six, ex- the, the six external as well as internal you know, sense spheres, then the seven enlightenment factors, Sata, Sambo, Janga, and Pani, and then the four noble truths. And when we practice Satipatthana meditation, then it's well. Then we should not be under the wrong impression that we have to practice only one at a time, or kind of as the sequence is indicating in the discourse that we need to start with the mindful contemplation of the body and then go on with the mindful contemplation of feelings and then of the mind and then only of Dhamma. And 
when we practice ourselves, then we will find that within one single sitting, all four of those may come up for uh, well for our or to be activated, and. A way of explaining uh, this is as follows, namely, let's say you know, you're observing you know, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and it could be any uh, other um, you know, predominant bodily you know, object. And then, at that point, you are said to, you know, to be doing Gaya um, Nupasana Satipatthana, so mindful contemplation of a bodily uh, phenomenon or object. And, so, and then, as you're observing you know, this you know, rising and falling movement of the abdomen and its you know, different uh, qualities, and you're knowing its uh, nature, then you may find that uh, there is uh, something else, or there's still something uh, more you know, to you know, the contemplation. And so, and so you realize you know, that there is uh, the... You know, the Rising and falling is accompanied by uh, some pleasant feeling. So once you're aware of it, once you're observing it mindfully, uh, and you know its nature, then you are said to be undertaking the mindful contemplation of feelings, Vedna Nupasana. And uh, knowing the nature of uh, no feeling, this of course uh, is certainly uh, separate. That's uh, you know, uh, that has to do with the wisdom aspect or wisdom you know, factor of uh, mind. And so, uh, then, as uh, your arising and falling is so you know, so soft and so you know, smooth and incredibly delicate. Uh, and it's, uh, it's pleasant, so uh, you can't get enough observing it, and uh, a liking arises, and uh, you want to experience more and more and more of it. And so, when you're when you then become aware of uh, this liking, liking you know, this particular kind of rising and falling, then our contemplation turns into mindful contemplation of the mind, citta nupasana satipatthana. And so, and then, as you're going on with your meditation practice, you might you know, find you know, after a while that your rising and falling is not behaving according to expectations and it's disappointing you by changing its nature. So early on it was soft and smooth and delicate and now it turns into really hard and totally compressed and painful and unpleasant and so aversion arises in the mind. And uh, aversion naturally is, uh, or is an unwholesome mental state, and uh, it is one of uh, the hindrances. And so then you're trying to deal with this unpleasant you know, rising and falling, and uh, then you might, uh, as, uh, as rising and falling is not improving, 
uh, not <laughs> not becoming any, or it's not uh, you know, becoming soft and smooth again, uh, but rather becoming increasingly you know, painful. You get restless. What is happening here? And so, uh, then you know, a new you know, mental you know, factor you know, comes into you know, play. And suddenly you are you know, then mindful of it. So you're labeling it, you're observing it. And so, uh, then uh, after a while, you, uh, after a while of uh, dealing with this difficult you know, rising and falling, and uh, the mind is not doing you a favor either. Uh, first uh, you know, there was the, you know, the liking to it, and then there was the aversion, and then you know, the restlessness, and then you know, skeptical doubts arise. My goodness, where is all of this leading me to? And so just during the first few days of the retreat, already so much trouble with the rise and fall. Oh, no, 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 this is not, this practice cannot be for me. And so after a while you realize that skeptical doubt has arisen in your stream of consciousness, so you become mindful of it. And so then you have to tackle this, and so then it may happen that after a while of dealing with this rising and falling and all these associated difficult mental states, you really just, or the mind just has enough of it, and it simply decides to go into the sleeping mode. And so, so then you'll be sitting there, and, uh, and you'll find your head nodding. And uh, when you wake up from you know, this, you know, then you realize, oh, what happened to me? Um, you know, I was uh, overwhelmed by you know, some you know, sloth and torpid. And so Tina Mida is there. And, so, and thus uh, there's mindful contemplation of uh, the you know, sloth and torpor. And with this, all of the five hindrances have occurred within one single sitting. And so even with you know, all with regard to, you know, to you know, the rise and fall, or in connection with the rise and fall. So what you know, this then means is, um, when, when a meditator realizes, oh, you know, the five hindrances have occurred you know, within this you know, single sitting, and uh, there's awareness of you know, this, and then it becomes uh, mindful contemplation of dhammas, and in this case of uh, the five hindrances. So this is one way of uh, interpreting it. And so all of this goes you know, to show that within one single sitting, you know, the four contemplations of uh, mindfulness can come up. And they don't necessarily have to arise in the given order, in the order as given in the Satipatthana Sutta. At some point, well, we can start with Gaya Nupasana, and then after a while it could be Chitta Nupasana, and then after a while it could be Dhamma Nupasana, and then we're aware of some predominant feeling, and with this it becomes Vedna Nupasana. Now, <clears throat> as for the term you know, sati, sati itself uh, 
frequently gets translated as mindfulness. And so other terms for sati are synonyms for it, are words such as awareness or presence of mind or attentiveness or heedfulness or diligence, wakefulness, and the like. And the Venerable Pandita tends to be you know, somewhat uh, not quite convinced with uh, the, especially with the translation as mindfulness, and you know, since it's not bringing across the dynamic nature mindfulness should possess. Therefore, you know, he is recommending to translate the term rather as observing power. Um, or at least uh, to make it clear that this would be a more uh, appropriate way of uh, translating it. <clears throat> and so, indeed, when we uh, practice, uh, then at first uh, the uh, flow of objects may still be uh, somewhat slow, but uh, later on as our uh, insight knowledge deepens, we will find that many things are happening and many objects are arising and with this the mindfulness has to speed up and be really dynamic to cope with what is happening. And even later on in the practice when everything becomes extremely refined, then the mindfulness or this observing power needs to be even more dynamic. And at that point, we need to be present, we need to be attentive to the present moment, really from micro-moment to micro-moment. Now, in order to then f- understand further aspects of uh, mindfulness, let us uh, take a closer look at uh, the classical fourfold satna definition of the term nisati. And uh, as the characteristic is uh, given in the Pali scriptural language as apilapana lakana, uh, which uh, uh, could be translated as non-superficiality. And uh, the way the commentators has, uh, have explained uh, this is, well, uh, the, uh, the mind that is not skimming over the surface of the object, uh, the mind uh, that is not wobbling, uh, but uh, you know, rather a mind uh, that, that is not uh, wobbling, not skimming, not floating uh, on you know, the surface of uh, an object, but rather sinking into you know, the object of uh, observation. And, uh, and then the commentaries or the commentator gives, first of all, a negative example for what the mindfulness should not be like, and it cites, uh, well, two cases, uh, a cork 
you know, thrown onto, you know, onto a river, and you know, then as a second you know, one, uh, a dry, hollow uh, you know, pumpkin, or a gourd, not pumpkin, gourd. And so, well, both of these you know, are you know, very light, and so, uh, thus they you know, do not you know, sink, but rather stay on the surface of uh, the river and floating along, wobbling, kind of bopping up and down on uh, the surface. And so our mindfulness should not be uh, like uh, the case of uh, a cork thrown, a cork or a gourd uh, thrown onto the water of, of a river. And, and instead, our mindfulness you know, should be like a stone thrown into, uh, into a river. And if the stone uh, is uh, heavy enough, you know, then it will naturally, because it's uh, uh, rather dense in uh, matter, it will you know, sink you know, to the bottom of uh, the riverbed. And so likewise, our mindfulness you know, should, you know, when, you know, when it's approaching an object, then, so it's, first of all, it should you know, go towards the object, then stay you know, with the object, and so even you know, penetrate or sink into you know, the object of uh, observation. And when this is the case, then a meditator will usually know the nature of the predominant object under observation, be it you know, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, or be it some pain, or you know, some other bodily sensation, or you know, even a mental state. Now, the function of uh, mindfulness is given in the Pali scripture language as asamosa rasa, and uh, this translates as non-forgetfulness or as absence of confusion, and uh, positively expressed, keeping the object uh, in view. So when we observe an object in our meditation practice, then uh, we you may find at times uh, that at first we are uh, mindful of it, we're attentive to it, and then after a while the mind drifts off and it gets lost in something else. And um, in this sense, we're forgetting you know, the original object. And so, so this should uh, not happen. And so instead, we should keep the most predominant object of observation in view and thus then our practice can develop further. And the explanation or the illustration that the venerable Nisadu Upandita likes to use for this function of mindfulness is that of a badminton player who 
uh, well, keeps the shuttlecock in view as uh, the match is going on. And so if uh, no, just for a split no, second, no, the badminton player is not no, aware or not present and does not keep the shuttlecock in view, then he or she might miss the shuttlecock the next time it approaches. Now, the third aspect that defines mindfulness is that of its manifestation. And the manifestation comes in two forms, namely as the primary manifestation of Visya Bhimukha Pachapatana, which means a state of being face-to-face with the object of observation, or to put it slightly differently, a state of confrontation. So the observing mind should be face-to-face with the object of uh, observation. Mukha is the face, is the, uh, the Pali word mukha means face in uh, English. Abhi mukha is face to face, and uh, bhava means a state, pachupatana means the manifestation, and visya is the obs- objective field, or in other words, uh, the um, the, the objects, the potential area of, uh, uh, of objects. And so, which then means it has the manifestation of being face-to-face with an, an object or the objective uh, field. Now, when this particular aspect uh, is present in our meditation practice, and not just for one or two or three moments, but for a longer period of time, then we will discover a certain amount of of purity of uh, the mind. And uh, this purity is the result of or is the second manifestation and it is the result of the first manifestation. And the second manifestation of mindfulness is given as protection or guardianship. So this state of being face-to-face with every arising object then prevents unwholesome mental states from arising in the stream of consciousness, and hence the mind is protected. And this is an, you know, this particular point here has tremendous implications. Now, as human beings, we all have to put up with. Uh, unwholesome mental states, with the so-called mental defilements, the kilesas. And all it takes for them to arise in the stream of consciousness is absent-mindedness. Just a few moments of absent-mindedness will do 
Now, the job and uh, the unwholesome mental states will have a field day. And you don't need to encourage them in any way. Uh, they'll happily arise by themselves. And so, so in order to avoid uh, this, it's uh, so important to maintain or to work towards uh, uh, a somewhat perfect you know, continuity of uh, one's mindfulness. <clears throat> now, the proximate cause for you know, the arising of mindfulness is uh, given as uh, or is twofold. And uh, the first one is uh, given as tirasanya padatana. Padatana means proximate cause or nearest cause. So that factor which uh, brings about uh, the arising of mindfulness. And tirasanya uh, uh, means perception. Tira is strong. So it refers to a strong perception. Then strong perception of what? Strong perception of the arising object. Now, from your own meditation practice, you may know that if the perception of some object isn't all that clear or not that strong, it will be very difficult then to be mindful of it, to be aware of it. Since you know, the incoming uh, perception is somewhat weak or you know, feeble. However, <clears throat> when the perception of an object is uh, you know, very, you know, very strong, very sharp, and the object may actually be a very tiny, minute little thing, maybe just some sound, some vague or faint sound in the distance. However, when the mind is sharp and uh, concentration is good and, and perception is also you know, you know, very sharp, and then you know, we, you know, the mind easily picks it up and uh, thus it's easy you know, to be mindful of it. But if the perception to start with is uh, no, feeble, no, then uh, how can the mental factor of mindfulness no, do its job? And the function of uh, perception, just uh, you know, to add this uh, here since we're um, touching on perception, is the making of a sign in you know, the mind for you know, some new object and um, then in the case of some object that has already you know, been you know, perceived in now, the past, it is recognizing that uh, the same object as being so-and-so you know, -so, or similar to so-and-so. You know, -so. <coughs> now, the second <coughs> sorry, proximate cause for you know, the arising of, <coughs> of mindfulness is uh, that of the four foundations of mindfulness uh, itself. 
And what uh, this refers to is uh, that if we have a continuous flow of moments of mindfulness, one after the other, then the resultant mindfulness will be strong. And uh, so it gradually, the momentum of the mindfulness as uh, we practice adds up, and uh, then uh, in the end uh, it becomes uh, very strong. However, if our mindfulness is more of a no, inter- or it has an intermittent nature, namely sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there, uh, then it's going to be, you know, then the resulting you know, mindfulness is going to be uh, relatively weak or it may even be uh, absent. Now, to give you an illustration you know, for this, namely if you have one uh, tiny little thread then the strength of this will be somewhat weak. But if you take another piece of thread and suddenly you tie these or you bring these together, you intertwine them, then the resultant will be already somewhat stronger. And then if you add a third and a fourth and a fifth thread and many more threads, then it will gradually form a string and certainly the string may be quite or yeah may be quite strong now our mindfulness should certainly possess not just the aspects uh, mentioned uh, so far, such as uh, non-superficiality and uh, then keeping the object in view, being face-to-face with the object, so state of confrontation, nor the aspect of protection, and uh, then the two proximate causes. Uh, But apart uh, from these, our mindfulness should uh, also fulfill another quality. And this is given as immediacy. And when an object arises in our meditation practice, then our mindfulness should be really quick and nothing else should come in between the arising of the object and the observing mind. So as soon as an object has arisen, and some objects arise at great speed, our mindfulness should go towards it without any hesitation, without any reflections, and without any delay. And if our mindfulness does not fulfill this particular aspect of immediacy, then how can we possibly know the nature of the object as the mind keeps being late all the time? Now, apart from this immediacy, there is another aspect that is useful to consider, and this is the aspect of concurrence. 
Now, when you're observing your rising and falling movement of uh, the abdomen, then, uh, well, it's a movement. So the object is, uh, uh, is moving, it's in process. So since this is the nature of uh, the rising and falling, you want to be with it in a concurrent uh, manner. You want to be with it, or you want to be in sync uh, with it. So uh, the observation should be synchronized with the occurrence of uh, the object. And so your mindfulness neither wants to be ahead of uh, the object nor uh, behind it. Now, the commentaries mention yet another quality that, or or not another quality, but mention a particular quality that our mindfulness should possess, and that is of okantitawa, which means the mindfulness should be entering or sinking into the object of observation. This is somewhat similar to the characteristic of mindfulness as sinking into the object. Now, some meditators on retreat, those who are maybe not that well informed yet, may think that they can get by with a somewhat ordinary, a somewhat superficial type of mindfulness. So kind of casual, casually being aware of what's going on. Oh, there's some hearing there, how nice. And so, oh, then some image has arisen in the mind. Oh, interesting. And so, oh, the rising is there. Oh, well... Uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's look at the fawning. Maybe this is easier to observe, and uh, so it goes. And uh, there's really no, 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 no there's not much quality to uh, the mindfulness. And what we need in our meditation practice is uh, not an ordinary type of mindfulness, but rather an extraordinary type of mindfulness. And uh, a type of mindfulness that is uh, uh, outstanding in nature, visita in the Pali scripture language. And on top of uh, this, it should be persistent, it should be uh, even excessive and intensive. And this, and the second Pali term for this is uh, busatan. And there's a cross-reference for this, namely where the Buddha says that the controlling faculties, the, the two pairs of faith and wisdom and effort and concentration, well, they should neither be in excess nor deficient. And if this would be the case, then one's practice would stagnate. However, in the case of mindfulness, the Buddha clearly states that 
it is never in excess. So, um, keep uh, uh, developing your mindfulness as much as you can until you know, the end of uh, uh, your days. And, so <laughs> and which means, which means we have even an, even an arahant, a holy one, still has to you know, improve his or her you know, mindfulness. So there's never going to be uh, a perfect uh, mindfulness. Now, I'm saying all of this to uh, well make it very clear that we should not be you know, too... Uh, well, yesterday the t- part of the talk was on contentment. So we should not be contented with ordinary mindfulness, no, but uh, uh, rather... Uh, uh, strive for uh, this extraordinary, outstanding uh, type of uh, mindfulness. And see, in the beginning of uh, of our meditation practice, and oftentimes in the beginning of a you know, retreat, what happens is that meditators just see, uh, well, the objects, the arising objects, in a rather rough manner, as uh, rather solid, rather compact. So a meditator will um, normally say something like, oh, well, a pain uh, was there. And uh, maybe maybe, go on to then point out what kind of pain, maybe a burning pain. But that's about it. And so so this is not very much yet. And when one then continues with one's practice and one keeps putting in plenty plenty of effort, then one finds after a while that there is more to the pain then meets the eye at first sight. And one might find, upon closer observation, oh, this pain consists of so many different sensations, and it isn't all that uniform, it isn't all that compact. And at first it seemed so continuous, there's the compactness as in continuity, Santatikana in the Pali language, and then one finds, oh no, uh, it's not continuous at all. And uh, sometimes it's uh, uh, kind of like, uh, it's wave-like, or some meditators are saying uh, it's breaking up into parts or segments. And later, then, or after further their contemplation, one finds that there are even more detailed satna than this. So, as our mindfulness sharpens, hour by hour, day by day, we gain a deeper and deeper understanding into the nature of the predominant objects. Now, Remember at the outset of uh, the talk 
it was mentioned that the Pali scriptural word satipatthana can be broken up into uh, in, in different ways as sati and patthana uh, being one way and as sati and uh, sati and upatthana being another way and uh, the second way of breaking up the word has two cases uh, namely as uh, well establishment of mindfulness and the other one was as presence of mindfulness now when we and take this term satipatthana and we break it up as satipa and then tana. And then sati still means the same thing, namely um, mindfulness. And pa, the particle pa, may assume a number of different uh, meanings, and this will be uh, then explained. And satipatthana is uh, related to um, patana. Uh, to standing, to yeah, to standing, and now the commentary explains uh, this uh, particle pa in various ways. And before we go into uh, the different interpretations, uh, let me uh, or allow me. To point out uh, that the Buddha could have uh, chosen uh, the term satitana instead of uh, saying satipatana. And so there must be some reason why he added uh, the particle pa. And one meaning which the particle pa can assume is that of rushing, of leaping, of uh, diving or plunging, plunging into, namely an object of observation. Now, when you rush, when you leap, when you plunge, then uh, do you do this in slow motion or quickly? Obviously. <laughs> can you dive in slow motion? <laughs> you cannot. So once you've taken off from the springboard, then uh, you'll be, uh, there'll be a certain momentum to you know, the whole thing. Likewise, uh, in our, or likewise for our mindfulness. So as soon as an object of observation has arisen, our observing mind should rush towards this object again without any hesitation and without any delay and in particular without asking any questions such as why is this particular object arising and how come and what are the reasons for this and so on and so forth. And if we do this, then it will slim, simply slow down our mindfulness. And so, you know, so if we wait until you know, all you know, the answers come up to our questions, then by that time the object may be gone already. And so <laughs> then maybe it wasn't worth you know, the effort. And so, so instead... Our mindfulness should have this 
dynamic quality of rushing uh, to an object with uh, great speed and uh, also uh, with uh, courage and to add this in a systematic manner, so not in a a chaotic uh, manner. Now, yet a further aspect of uh, the particle pa is that of upaganhitwa pawatati, which means firmly grasping or seizing the object of uh, observation. And to start with an illustration... Paddy fields in Asia are a common sight. And when the time comes to harvest, the paddy, the farmer, needs to uh, firmly grasp a bushel of paddy with one hand, and uh, with the other hand, he or she then needs to uh, hold a sickle and cut that certain bushel of uh, paddy. Now, if the bushel of paddy is not being grasped properly, then how can the farmer cut it uh, nicely and uh, quickly? So the same thing goes uh, for the observation of some predominant object. We should firmly grasp it. Now, this is easy to say, but sometimes very difficult to do. And some of the objects of observation, in particular mental states, tend to be as slippery as an eel. So those who've tried to catch an eel with bare hands will know what is meant by this. So you focus your attention on some some predominant object and you try to grasp it firmly and then you barely are grasping it and the object then changes or all of a sudden is gone and maybe later on stages come back. So, the mind has this tendency of easily slipping of uh, objects. And this tendency we have to recognize and we then even need to uh, counter uh, counter this and train the mind in firmly staying or firmly grasping an object and staying with it for a longer period of time. Now, what happens in one of the somewhat higher insight knowledges is, and it's absolutely practice-related, an object arises and the attention turns to the object and it's simply it's not staying. It's simply it's not staying there, and instead simply bouncing off uh, you know, the object, and this may happen over and over again. And you now you can imagine, you know, for a meditator, this is quite frustrating. So it's 
<laughs> it's kind of uh, like uh, yeah, well hitting yeah, hitting a tennis ball against uh, a wall. It certainly uh, keeps uh, bouncing off. Um, and it's not certainly uh, staying in a uh, in a particular uh, place. Now, the Venerable Mahasi side of Burma, when he conceived his approach to Vipassana meditation, was rather pragmatic and rather realistic in suggesting that meditators start observing coarse objects and then in uh, working with these, gaining some experience, uh, deep strengthening the mindfulness, and then, uh, no, then taking on the somewhat more refined objects, and uh, having uh, succeeded in observing you know, the somewhat more refined objects, a meditator uh, would then be uh, advised to observe the really you know, refined objects. And so this is what we are doing here. We just follow this natural development. And a mental state like equanimity will not be easily accessible at the very beginning of one's meditation retreat. And Thus, it does take quite some time of uh, work, of meditative work, in order to develop the mindfulness uh, so uh, that eventually, when equanimity becomes predominant, that one uh, can uh, then be uh, fully aware of it. And there are a number of other mental states that are somewhat like or similarly somewhat refined and difficult to pick up at the very beginning. Now, our mindfulness certainly should then possess another quality, which is certainly given as covering the object completely, but the ritua bhavatati in the Pali scriptural language. And this certainly very much applies to an object like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or it also applies to any kind of predominant object. And what it means is that we try to be with the entirety of the object, not just with one portion of it. Now, having said this, certain limitations or certain conditions need to be mentioned. At the very beginning of one's meditation practice, 
when observing an object like the rising and falling, a meditator is usually not in a position to know the entire rising and fawning movement of the abdomen from start to finish. But rather, the middle portion will come uh, or will be most predominant and thus uh, the easiest to uh, observe. And it is then only with further practice that a meditator then also becomes more aware of the ending of it and even later later on the beginning portion of it then also becomes accessible. And then only can one truly say that a meditator is covering an object like the rising and falling completely. Now, as pointed out already during yesterday's talk and early on during this talk, the continuity of mindfulness matters a lot. And it's probably one of the most vital factors for one's progress in the meditation practice. And it is usually those meditators who are really quite continuous in their mindfulness who um, proceed swiftly or quickly in uh, their meditation. Whereas meditators, and I'm saying this based on uh, experience, uh, meditators who are somewhat discontinuous in their mindfulness, they tend to uh, move ahead somewhat uh, slower. So the continuity of mindfulness is not uh, just important to protect the mind against uh, the arising of unwholesome mental states, but uh, it uh, also is a factor that strongly contributes uh, to um, progress in the practice. And it is, furthermore, this continuity of uh, mindfulness together with effort, together with uh, faith, uh, that then leads to the arising of concentration and uh, wisdom. And as we've seen uh, earlier on, the continuity of our uh, mindfulness um, uh, then also contributes to the overall strength or the power of uh, mindfulness. And naturally, we want our mindfulness to be as sharp as uh, possible or as powerful as uh, possible. So ideally, one moment of mindfulness should be connected with the next moment of mindfulness, the preceding moment of mindfulness, and the succeeding moment of mindfulness should be connected. And the Venerable Masi Sayada brings... Uh, this uh, aspect of uh, the continuity of mindfulness in in the context of the intensity of one's meditation 
um, brings it across with the help of an illustration, namely in the old days when there were no gas lighters available and no matches available either, then people, in order to light a fire, people have to rub two dry sticks against each other or rub two stones against each other and have some dry well, woods or chisels of wood nearby. And so then if one, um, if one rubs the two you know, sticks together in a somewhat intermittent manner, you know, then so one rubs for a while and uh, then one takes a rest to daydream. And, so <laughs> and, then, and then one decides to continue, but uh, by that time you know, the, you know, the heat of friction that had earlier on been built up is gone already and one can start all over again. So uh, it's easy to see that in this way one will not be able to ignite uh, a spark nor uh, uh, start a fire. Likewise uh, for meditators who uh, are practicing with somewhat on and off intermittent uh, mindfulness. Now, our our mindfulness should be continuous. We should make sure that our mindfulness does not resemble the behavior of some house lizard or some chameleon. Well, most of or some of you will be familiar with this already and uh, the nature of uh, of a house lizard or a chameleon is uh, when approaching some uh, destination uh, this being is uh, move suddenly uh, dashing ahead uh, then uh, for no particular reason stopping gazing around uh, for uh, not just for one minute or two minutes, uh, but for even longer periods, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, decide to you know, dash uh, uh, ahead again. And so, so a house lizard or a chameleon you know, you know, may surprisingly you know, survives with this kind of a behavior. However, if our meditators assume the same kind of uh, uh, behavior. Uh, in regard to their mindfulness, uh, then um, uh, this uh, uh, may not lead very far. Um, now, maybe the last point for today is the aspect of anatta. You've all heard about um, the uh, universal characteristic of uh, uh, the absence of a self, and um, uh, this is true, or this applies to all you know, formations, and uh, this aspect also applies you know, to our meditation practice, the way we practice. And uh, it is not uncommon among meditators 
to, among meditators, when observing some predominant object of observation, to interfere, to kind of, uh, well, you know, play with the rising fawning a little bit, kind of fine-tune it a little bit. Tomorrow is the next interview. Oh, and I have nothing to report. <laughs> this teacher is asking about the rising and falling all the time. So uh, how will I ever uh, 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 get together a report on the rising and falling? So what if I uh, then uh, make the rise and fall somewhat more distinct by breathing heavily uh, or uh, by holding, uh, holding the air for a while? and things like this. Now, uh, this is uh, uh, not the right uh, approach. And uh, this is, uh, if you like, to the so-called Atta approach. Uh, So one is uh, the ego, the self, is strongly involved, and uh, one then determines uh, what one's rising and falling is going to be like. Now, um, this will not lead or will not yield good results. Instead, we should right away from the very beginning of our retreat assume a different kind of attitude towards our predominant objects, namely an attitude of anatta, of not interfering, of not wanting the rising and falling to be uh, something else uh, than it actually is. So we observe it the way it is, even if it's uh, unpleasant, even if it doesn't uh, conform uh, with our uh, expectations or uh, ideas. And when we do this, when we pay attention to this particular aspect, then we will find over time that it's that it becomes much easier to actually do the practice. And this um, note or this constant um, interference with the rising and falling and other objects is actually a source of unnecessary suffering. So things are never going to happen the way you know, we want them to be. Maybe sometimes, yes, but oftentimes not. And in particular, when we observe some strong pain or some difficult mental state, if we fight it, if we battle it, if we want to make it go away, then then we are adding mental suffering. So there's the suffering that comes through the actual pain, physical pain, and then on top of this, there is the the mental aversion towards uh, the uh, pain. And the mental aversion, obviously, is uh, another form of suffering. So we end up with a twofold suffering, and uh, this makes uh, things unnecessarily uh, difficult. And you may find in the course of your meditation practice that when you're simply observing an object as it is, and in particular some difficult pain or difficult mental state, then uh, with an accepting and patient attitude, the object dissolves by itself. And on top of this, further progress becomes possible. But forcing it will lead just to uh, the opposite. Now, 
Um, this I'm saying, not uh, you know, just uh, not based on any any books or so, and, uh, but uh, rather you know, based on you know, the experiences of uh, uh, meditators. One can see it again and again and again. So when the moment comes uh, that a meditator accepts an object as it is, then you know, things will move ahead. Otherwise, not necessarily. Now. Maybe this much Shatner for today. Let me conclude today's Shatner Dhamma talk, and there's, uh, there'll be more on this topic tomorrow. So let me conclude Shatner by wishing that may your mindfulness assume all the many different qualities that have been uh, described and explained during this talk such as uh, the firm and steady uh, and certainly close or steadfast and close establishment of the mind on the object of observation and uh, then furthermore the immediacy and concurrence and in the continuity of one's mindfulness and covering an object completely firmly grasping an object and so on so and possessing these you know, qualities may this lead to strong you know, concentration and uh, in turn may lead uh, to you know, the arising of uh, intuitive uh, uh, insight, so in other words of wisdom, and eventually may it propel you to you know, the attainment of that state of peace that was mentioned already yesterday. And may this happen not just sometime in the future, but during this very retreat. And this is it for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.